Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special symposium episode of the show focused on financial and corporate regulation in the Biden administration. As part of this symposium, we'll hear from five panels of scholars and practitioners about what we might expect for financial and corporate regulation over the next four years of the Biden-Harris administration. We'll return with our regular episodes next week. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app. We'll let others know about the show, too. Welcome to the final episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. Today's panel focuses on enforcement and policing and includes Miriam Baer, Jacob Elberg, and Karen Woody. Miriam, Jake, Karen, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks Thank for having, having us. I'm looking forward to hearing some of your insights about enforcement and policing uh, over the next four years in just a few moments. But I wondered if before we begin, if you might want to introduce yourselves and highlight any areas or issues that you're going to be focused on over the next four years. Miriam? Sure. So I am both a former federal prosecutor from the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, and I also spent some time in corporate compliance. So my interests are in sort of three different areas. I'm interested in what you might call pandemic fraud, which are the, and this is something that the current Department of Justice is already focused on, but I would expect the Biden Department of Justice to take the ball and keep running. And with regard to pandemic fraud, there's sort of two flavors to that. One is, relates to the fact that when the government makes a huge amount of money available to aid different businesses and people, you always run the risk that recipients of that money are undeserving and or lying in order to get that money, right? So I would expect that to be something that the government continues to worry about and that the Department of Justice continues to look into that. The other type of fraud, and we're seeing some of this already, is the kind of fraud that just exists in which fraudsters take advantage of the fact that so many of us are isolated and we're not actually looking at the goods and services we purchase, which means there's a great opportunity for people to promise things that they don't really deliver. And so we've already seen that. We've seen cases like that. But I would expect, again, the government to continue looking into that. Now, the final element of pandemic fraud that I think is not as straightforward, but it's going to be something important, relates to the fact that we're going to be now distributing this vaccine, granted through the states, but we're going to have this vaccine out there. And it strikes me, again, that's going to have, you're going to create two different types of fraud I would be looking for with regard to the vaccine. One is you're going to have unscrupulous folks who claim to have the vaccine, even though they don't, right? So they, you'll have sort of the folks claiming, hey, I've got the vaccine. And what they've really got is they're pumping you full of, I don't know, sugar water. The other group, uh, I would be worried about doctors who are diverting real vaccine to folks with lots of money. And that would be a great concern. And so I think those are going to be problems that the government has to look into. The other areas that I will be looking at include money laundering. We know that this is something that Congress cares about and will sort of be doubling down on. And so I would be very interested in bank compliance and how that plays out. And then the final category of crimes that I expect the Department of Justice to take a look at would be what I sort of roughly call the corruption conflicts of interest set of crimes. And not, you know, we all think about, well, what kind of crimes can you bring against the Trump administration or people who are within the Trump administration? I'd actually be interested in the extent to which the Department of Justice looks into these kinds of behaviors with regard to local and state officials. 
And so I would expect, you know, if you believe in the idea that culture matters, what you would expect is if the federal government loosened the reins on things like conflicts of interest. In other words, we sort of didn't care if people violated conflicts of interest. And we kind of let people engage in broad violations of law with, with impunity then you would expect a sort of mirroring or trickle-down effect to occur, and you would expect local officials to engage in similar behavior. And so I would be very interested to see the extent to which the Department of Justice focuses on corruption and conflicts of interest among mayors, governors, state senators, and the like. And those are the areas that are of most interest to me right now. Thank you. Jake? Thanks, Andrew. I'm a professor at Seton Hall Law School uh, before moving to Seton Hall. I was with the Department of Justice for 11 years, the last five of which I ran at the District of New Jersey, one of the largest healthcare fraud units in the country and was responsible for all of the criminal and civil investigations involving healthcare there. And so that was related to my work at, at Seton Hall, where I teach classes in healthcare fraud. I run a class on data analytics, and I'm also a faculty advisor for our compliance programs around the world. So I come at the new administration focused on issues of corporate misconduct and compliance and trying to think about what is the relationship going to be between government and the Department of Justice in particular and corporate actors. It's, it's a really interesting time to see how it develops in significant part because of some of the issues that Miriam mentioned when we're looking at issues of fraud relating to the pandemic. You heard from Miriam talk about lots of different types of fraud that are carried out by individuals. And they're often egregious things, whether we're talking about snake oil salesmen or other things where they're going to be misconduct by individuals. And one of the things I think to keep an eye on is to what extent those types of things are the focus of Department of Justice efforts. And to what extent, while those things are being looked at, there's also an effort to look at big corporate crime and, and misconduct at a higher level. Uh, there's obviously tremendous amounts of money at play here. And so whether we're going to be dealing with lots of investigations, lots of resources from a DOJ perspective put into uh, those big actors. I think it's a really interesting time in terms of the relationship between DOJ and big companies. One of the things that we've seen in the context now with lots of talk about criminal justice reform focused on individuals, but a general sense of, of criticism of the Trump administration in terms of the level of effort being put into police and corporate crime, whether we're going to see that ramp up in the Biden administration, while at the same time, we're also seeing a level of appreciation for some work, at least done by big companies when we talk about vaccine development and that sort of thing. So particularly in the areas of healthcare, I think there is an increased recognition of the positive benefits of big companies, uh, but also at the same time, a desire to see the new administration crack down on misconduct by some of those same types of companies. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Thank you. And Karen? Hi, thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm Karen Woody. I teach law at Washington and Lee University. 
before entering academia, I also was in practice for about 10 years, not at the DOJ, but on the other side, I was doing corporate defense, mostly in Washington, D.C. And so some of my work from that time has carried over into what I think and write about now. And so I would categorize those sort of in three discrete but somewhat overlapping areas and three that I think might have some significance as we transition to a new administration. So the first area uh, is in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act field. And this is one that actually surprisingly might not have a wild swing in sort of differences between administrations. And that is potentially primarily because the Trump administration, despite Trump being very clear that he hates the FCPA and would love to see the end of it, his DOJ hadn't actually followed that course so much. So we still saw enforcement of the FCPA in the Trump administration, but we did see some shifts somewhat in the leniency maybe that we saw toward corporations, depending on which way you view that. The pilot program, which allowed for sort of a declination from the DOJ if there was voluntary disclosure of wrongdoing by the companies, that was put forth by Leslie Caldwell in 2016, right at the end of the Obama administration, but was carried forward by Rod Rosenstein and, and the Trump DOJ. So it wasn't necessarily that this was a Trump-only uh, program by any means, but we did see sort of this shift to becoming more of a presumption of a declination. That pilot program was codified in the U.S. Attorney's Manual in 2017. So we did see that becoming more ensconced, this idea that there could be some form of amnesty-ish sort of, of of a program toward corporations and whether or not that, you know, that tracks with maybe a more Republican type of light touch regulation of corporations. That maybe is the case, but I can't imagine those two shifts are wildly different between the Obama to the Trump administration. And because past is prologue and because Biden will usher in assumingly uh, DOJ that probably look a lot like what we saw four years ago, I don't know if I'm going to imagine there'll be a wild swing in or in, in a wild uptick in FCPA prosecutions or investigations simply because there's been a shift in administrations. We have seen a number of foreign companies be sort of the target of the FCPA, and it's possible that that scope might broaden back to sort of more domestic companies and their involvement in any sort of foreign bribery schemes. But I, I can't necessarily predict that. So that's the first area that I would mention. And the other one is somewhat related, and that is insider trading. And I only say somewhat related because just this year we saw an intersection between those two things, the internal controls provision of the FCPA being applied actually in an insider trading scheme just in this a few months ago in the Endeavor case. But insider trading, I think, will be, as it always is, somewhat of a priority, particularly as it related to what we saw in the spring with members of Congress trading in advance of, you know, related to confidential briefings they had received that pertain to the coronavirus and the pandemic. I think that insider trading is always an area where we see somewhat of a chasm between what the law allows and what the majority of America kind of thinks should be illegal. And that was a very significant uh, moment of that, of people thinking, wait, this isn't illegal that these people are doing this and are able to do this as members of Congress. So I think we'll see a push to try to narrow that gap of sort of what we have a knee-jerk reaction to of thinking is wrong. And, you know, the fact that there are significant loopholes still in inside trading. 
And between Prepahara's commission and the Bill Hines bill, we, there has been a push for legislation to put insider trading sort of into a very clear codified form. And we'll see if I assume that will also carry forward into the Biden administration, I would assume. And then finally, I, you know, another area that I have spent a lot of time um, and effort thinking about was conflict minerals regulation, which more broadly, I think, applies to ESG disclosures. I don't think the drum beat on that will lessen at all in the Biden administration. I think it will only grow that this idea that there are stakeholders and important concepts that maybe companies need to be considering and have mandatory disclosures related to things like climate change, closer to you know this idea that ESG is not going away, that that will be of primary importance, certainly, I think, to this new administration. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Thank you all for those introductions and for highlighting some areas to look at over the next four years and perhaps to hear a little bit more about in this conversation. This is a conversation that is looking toward the next four years, but I thought we might start by looking backwards. I wondered if you could maybe highlight some areas of uh, missed opportunities or failures in the area of corporate enforcement and policing that you've seen from the Trump administration or the Obama administration before it. And if there are some uh, perhaps opportunities that the Biden administration might have in those areas. Miriam? Well, I have to say what I've had on my mind for a bit is Purdue Pharma, right? Um, because ultimately now the, the Department of Justice is in the midst of negotiating with Purdue Pharma. But I think if you look back at Purdue Pharma, it's really hard to see that as a win. And in fact, it's to see that as a win for any Department of Justice official, I mean, going back in time. I mean, I, ultimately, I think we'll look back on this and we're going to say that to the extent Purdue Pharma was finally sort of brought down and that there was some accounting and really right of this moment right now, I think there are many who feel that the Sacklers, the owners of Purdue Pharma are walking away without significant accountability. I think we will ultimately decide that whatever accountability occurred, occurred because of state AGs, right? And state attorneys general and the work that they did. And so I think there's a real question there about why did this occur and what allowed it to occur? And what's sort of interesting is if you go back in time, and this is not about the Trump administration, this is a sort of a much longer standing pathology. You know, you look at the fact that there were three high-level officials charged under what we refer to as the Responsible Corporate Officer Doctrine a long time ago with regard to Purdue Pharma's marketing of opioids, of OxyContin. And nothing really happened after that. I mean, the, there was a whole issue. They ended up not being able to continue in the pharmaceutical world. So they suffered penalties in a sort of financial manner. But it's still, I don't think people felt that there was nearly enough of an accounting back then. And eventually, now I think there's a real question about whether or not uh, we're going to really learn what happened, enough of what happened. And I think it's an important question of to what role should the Department of Justice play in that? And I think that's sort of interesting. That's one failure I can think of where, and I don't think it's fair to call that a Trumpian failure. I think that's just a failure. And I think that's one in particular that stands out. And I think that's something that the Biden administration should give some thought to going forward. Thank you. Jake? 
I think what Karen, the issues Karen had raised are really significant. And I'd agree with her that the criticisms in general, when we're talking about corporate enforcement, are not ones that are strictly from the Trump administration. But I think that they can, the causes can be attributed slightly differently. Because obviously, to put together the corporate investigations and have the kind of reckoning that the public has really been clamoring for now for a long time requires both the skill and the commitment to do it, and also the resources. During the uh, Obama administration, DOJ was to a significant degree resource limited. There were significant efforts by the Republican Congress for much of Obama's time to have DOJ have less resources, so just fewer prosecutors out there and less resources to work with to make it happen. During the Trump administration, we saw a significant increase in those DOJ resources, a significant increase in the number of prosecutors within DOJ. But at the same time, the priorities really weren't on white collar crime. So we saw this increase in resources, but so much of that being devoted to immigration and street crime and those sorts of things. And then even when it comes to white collar crime, one of the interesting developments during the Trump administration was that DOJ seems to have discovered data. And it's something that some of us at DOJ uh, had been using for a significant period of time. But during the Trump administration at a broader level, DOJ has kind of fallen in love with data, notably, though, not only for external investigations, but for internal accounting and for internal tracking. And so one of the things that happened throughout the Trump administration is that when it came to looking at white collar crime, uh, there's a significant degree of measuring success by things like numbers of convictions which as anyone who's prosecuted white collar crime knows when you're using that as the metric, it is a recipe for looking at smaller fit and low hanging fruit and not devoting the kind of tremendous resources that's necessary to get the more difficult, more challenging cases that probably are more important from a societal perspective and certainly are the ones that the public has been asking for. So it'll be interesting to see, and we don't know the answer yet, whether from a budget perspective, the Biden administration is going to be able to maintain the amount of personnel within DOJ that the Trump administration has had. If we do have that, if the resources are at that level, with the expected shift of more of those resources towards white collar enforcement, I think there's hopefully a real opportunity there for the first time, at least over the course of these last few administrations, to have the level of resources that DOJ would want to have devoted towards this important area. Thank you. And Karen? Yeah, it's a great question, Andrew. And I, the thing that jumps out at me, and it admittedly is, is slightly outside of my area of expertise, but what strikes me is that, you know, there's a reason in my mind that Trump hated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and threatened to be done with it. And that, you know, he alleged that that was because, you know, it hurt American businesses and didn't give them equal playing field or even playing field. But it's hard to square that with this is an administration that I hope I'm not speaking too far out of school by saying that has been rife with corruption. And not only that, there's been significant allegations that the DOJ has been very captured in the sense that they aren't looking into that. So in terms of missed opportunities or places where I think there has been a dearth of maybe enforcement or investigation, at least, you know, I think 
sort of the domestic side of the FCPA, the Hatch Act, we all are now well aware of, something that was probably a pretty sleepy area of the law until this administration. I, I don't think that's a coincidence because we have seen sort of unprecedented levels of corruption, use of the office in ways we haven't seen before. And so, uh, like I said, this isn't exactly my area of expertise, but it's hard for me to look at these past four years and not see that as an area that I hope the Biden administration will shift at least or pick those things up and really investigate what seems to me like a fairly pervasive presence of corruption within the administration. So that's one area, I think, for sure. Like I said earlier, I might be repeating myself, but I do think the insider trading, the, the use of confidential briefings through people in Congress or elsewhere who have access to certain data or information related to the pandemic, I think that was also a missed opportunity. I know that there were cursory investigations by the administration into Loeffler and others, but... Um, I think that's one that, if nothing else, I think the public will still be sort of demanding some answer on where those went and why those didn't really turn anything up. So that would be my two quick thoughts about things that maybe were overlooked over these last four years. This conversation is being recorded on December 8th, 2020. And so at this point, the Biden administration is being assembled, but we don't know who will be the heads of the DOJ or other enforcement agencies who will be certainly the assistant AGs or uh, deputy secretaries in various agencies that have enforcement mission or heads of independent agencies that have an enforcement mission. So with that limitation in mind, I wondered if you might be able to predict a little bit of what we might see in the next four years in terms of some of these issues that we've been talking about. Miriam? I don't know if it's the prediction so much as it's a desire but I think what you want to see is introspection from the next attorney general as to what just happened at the Department of Justice, right? And I think Karen alludes to some of this, which is that we saw some unprecedented incursions on prosecutorial discretion throughout the last four years. And when we see things like that, we start to worry that the Department of Justice is losing its sort of independent streak, right? And I think that kind of top-down analysis of where were our norms eroded? Were there instances when we appeared to overrule our career prosecutors? Were there instances when main justice interfered with the decision-making of specific U.S. attorneys? I'm thinking in particular... U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman for the Southern District of New York. Were there times when we appeared to be acting as if we were the president's attorney or law firm? That is not something that the Department of Justice is supposed to do. And so this sort of goes to a broader point. You can't be a premier prosecutor of corruption unless you are independent. And to assure independence, we have all these different types of rules and policies, and some of them are written down, and some of them aren't, or they're just sort of understood, or some of them are written down, but aren't really binding. And so I think that's something that the Biden administration, through its next attorney general, is going to have to really do a top-down analysis of what has occurred, because we just see sort of the tip of the iceberg. 
we see those cases where a prosecutor noisily withdraws from the case or where a U.S. attorney gets into a fight with the Department on Justice about whether or not he's actually stepping down from his position. We don't see everything else that's going on. And I think there are many of us who worry there's more out there we just don't know about. And I think that's something, and you know, that's a problem. When I say it's a problem, there's always a, a risk, which is you spend too much time on that, right? There's this, you're going to get criticized as, well, you're not moving forward. You need to put your resources into prosecuting new crimes and all that kind of stuff. But I think these violations of independence norms are important and they are important to investigate. And that it's important that you have a body that's set up within the Department of Justice that is tasked with doing just that. And it may not be that these are crimes, by the way. But it is important to figure out where were our norms violated? Why were those norms violated? And how do we fix them? In fact, by the way, really what I'm describing are the kinds of behaviors you expect a corporation to do when the corporate compliance officer says, how did we get into this mess and how do we fix it? That kind of searching questions where you try to look for the root causes of the problem and then you ask, how can we change our structures so that we don't have this problem again? That is something I would like to see the Department of Justice engage in. So that's not a prediction, but it's a hope. My hope is that, you know, if I made that prediction, that it would actually be, that would actually take place. All right. Thank you. Jake? I'll stop short of predicting a particular method as Miriam does, and I think very effectively in terms of how the Department of Justice and the Biden administration will seek to address it. But I'd agree that I think what we really will see, and I think we can firmly expect to see, is a lot of effort devoted, putting any specific case aside, a lot of effort being put into reasserting the independence and the integrity of DOJ. Much of what we've all been talking about, whether Karen's comments or Miriam's or or mine, have been about some missed opportunities in terms of investigation, some cases that the public may wish or would be broad and, and may or may not be. One of the things that's really important for DOJ and for our society as a whole is being able to have faith that even if the result of an investigation, even if the result of a prosecution doesn't leave us feeling fulfilled, even if it's not the result that we would all want, to at least be able to take solace and have comfort in the idea that that result is happening for the right reasons. That if DOJ isn't succeeding, it's not because of some corrupt behind the scenes deal going on that led DOJ to not be trying its hardest or something of that nature. And and that has, to a significant degree, been lost over these last four years. And whether through the method that Miriam described or otherwise, I think what we're going to see is a, a real explicit and significant effort at reinstalling that integrity and that independence. And it's important from a public perspective, and it's also important from an internal perspective. We have seen really for the first time DOJ employees who even some current DOJ employees speaking out about what's been going on. We've also seen significant numbers of departures of folks who are departing, not just because they're moving on to other things in their lives, but because of real discomfort with what the Department of Justice has been 
doing. And so those are problems for the functioning of DOJ, even aside from public perception. But for both of those reasons, and I I think it goes back to being able to accomplish the goals that Miriam and Karen and I have all been speaking about throughout this conversation, you can't do that without the public having a real faith in the independence and the integrity of DOJ. That's something that's been significantly eroded over these last four years. And I firmly expect significant efforts to improve that going forward. Thank you. And Karen? I would just say that I could not applaud more the answers that Miriam and Jake gave. And so I actually hope that someone in the administration taps both of you because you both had excellent answers about restoring norms that I think really is getting at the heart of what we're all saying. I I think that's great answers. I think my predictions would be in terms of the FCPA, we'll see continual enforcement of that. I'd be curious to know if we move at all, maybe a touch away from this presumption of declination, this idea that if companies self-disclose that they get a pass. Like I said, that was posited initially by a Democratic administration. And so I don't know if there will be a shift, but I do think, given the sort of zeitgeist after this last administration, that appearing too cozy with industries and corporations might not be a great look. And so there might be a more sort of buckling down a little bit tighter going forward if there certainly is evidence of violations of the FCPA or other regulations. So I'm not 100% on that at all. That's a soft prediction. So that's what I would say in that realm. Another prediction I think we'll see there'll be some movement on is in the remedy sphere after the Lou decision at the SEC and sort of how the SEC will have to carve out what the disgorgement allotments are. That is obviously dovetails with some of its FCPA enforcement. That'll be something that comes up in those cases, certainly, because there's been such major disgorgement mounts from those type of cases. And after We've seen some real hard looks at what that remedy, be it equitable or punitive, is. And so how the Lou decision has cabined that somewhat, but still allows the SEC to go forward with using disgorgement, obviously, as a remedy. I think there could be some ways that we see the shift in those numbers. Sometimes maybe even as DOJ and SEC split an FCPA case, that there might be some re- norming of where we see the bigger numbers between penalties and fines and disgorgement. So that's one area I would still sort of watch that space to see how the Lou decision actually is being applied. That would be the two predictions that I can think of off the top of my head. Those are some predictions or expectations, perhaps hopes for the next four years. I'd like to turn the conversation to the advice that you might give. If officials from the Biden-Harris administration were to ask you for your best advice in terms of how to approach corporate enforcement and policing over the next four years, what might you tell them? Miriam? So I'm sorry, this raises different issues. One question, which I think Karen alluded to earlier when we were talking about insider trading, would be questions about to what extent do we need legislation that better defines or more precisely defines the particular behaviors we're most concerned about, right? So should we have a different set of statutes that set out to define insider trading? Should we come up with different statutes 
that relate to, you know, in other words, instead of relying on what we currently have, and I'm just simply throwing things out for, say, tax fraud or money laundering, instead of the open-ended statutes that we tend to use, we have these sort of open-textured statutes, and then we rely on prosecutorial discretion to sort of flesh them out. Should we have more specific statutes? It's not clear to me, by the way, that that results in better enforcement, but that's always sort of a common question about congressional statutes and their effect on criminal prosecution. I think a second question, though, relates to what kind of funding we need, which Jake has already talked about. And then also, you know, related to that, what kind of, and this is a little different, which is what kind of coordination do we need? One of the interesting things that I think happened over the last four years is you had two things happening. One, you had skilled prosecutors leaving the Department of Justice or the U.S. Attorney's offices, either they retired or they left. And then you also had people who might in the past have actually gone there going to, and I'm going to bring this up again, state attorney general's offices. So that sort of raises an interesting question. Will people now who are happily doing the work that they find fulfilling at, say, a well-known state AG's office suddenly jump to the feds. I don't know that they will. And so there's an interesting question about to the extent we have these state AGs who are doing really good work, how can you leverage that work? And what that really means is it's a sort of cooperative federalism question about how can the feds and state AGs work together? A lot of that has to do with questions about sharing information. I think there's going to be a lot of interesting sort of coordination questions, along with the usual questions of where are there holes that you need to plug in your federal statutes? And of course, there's always the question about whether our federal statutes have become so unwieldy that we should just revise the code. I don't think we have the time to do that right now, but I don't think we should completely take that off the table. It may be there may be a point where we want to really start thinking about this as a long-term project, which is really rethinking our federal criminal code, because right now what we have are a lot of redundant and overlapping statutes, and there might be reason to think about how to revise those. Thank you. Jake? Before I move on to advice, I just want to comment for a moment on something that Miriam said, because it's a really interesting point when Miriam referenced the idea that some folks who have would have in the past gone to U.S. attorney's offices or to Maine Justice in D.C. have had instead look to attorney general's offices. And I think we've seen that in terms of folks going directly there and also from folks leaving DOJ because of concerns about what's going on at the department and then heading to attorney general's offices. And that goes back to our earlier discussion of whether DOJ will be able to reclaim its place as what it's always been, which is something which is, it doesn't matter so much who the president is. It doesn't matter so much who the attorney general is. Not because those roles aren't incredibly important, obviously they are, but in terms of the day-to-day operations of the entity. And uh, so for me, as someone who served under a a Republican administration, a Democratic administration, then a Republican administration again at DOJ, always viewed it as a place that's supposed to be one where that doesn't matter. And I think Miriam's point is really a good one. We'll see if we get back to that or if the horse has left the barn uh, and we're going to see a continued increased role of attorney general's offices. In terms of advice, we're at a really interesting place as a country, I think, in terms of taking stock and really re-examining the relationship between prosecutors and law enforcement and the public. 
And a lot of that has focused on and will continue to focus on individual prosecutions. And that's as it should be. That's incredibly important. That's clearly going to happen. So I'll save my advice for the other aspect, which is while that's going on, I think it's really important that the administration also give significant thought to the relationship between prosecutors and law enforcement and corporations and white collar crime. Because just as the prosecution of individuals and how that is carried out has a significant impact on public trust in the system, so does the extent to which there are resources being put towards prosecutions of corporations. We see when we look at public confidence in uh, institutions, not only the Department of Justice, but institutions more broadly, really looking for there to be accountability from those big entities and that be carried out by the Department of Justice. And so uh, I think my advice would be that DOJ really keep in mind that the type of white collar prosecution, whether of individuals or of companies, that those are things that are really good and not just good, but necessary for public trust in the system. And they not only pay for themselves from a resource perspective, because they bring back money, as Karen's talked about throughout our discussion, but they're important in terms of people being able to trust their institutions, both government and, and outside of it. So hopefully we will see a significant effort there and not have a baby be thrown out with the bathwater as we are presumably going to be significantly decreasing the amount of resources devoted to prosecutions of street crime and, and other individual crimes. Thank you. And Karen? I'm going to piggyback on what Miriam said a little bit about really the code. You know, what are the laws that we are able to leverage and to use in order to get a handle on activity that we don't condone? And the prescription I would give or sort of the advice would be that there is immense opportunity in the creativity that line prosecutors uh, and others might be able to find even in the code that we have. And one example of that is the more recent case we saw with insider trading being brought under 18 USC 1348 under broad level general securities fraud as opposed to Section 10B5. This is a fairly novel concept that a prosecutor in Georgia brought a couple cases with it. But we now have seen through a Second Circuit case, Blasiak, that we might actually see a divergence between juries that are willing to meet the elements of 1348, while very onerous burdens of finding the elements of a 10b-5, there's sort of a difference now between those. So we might see more prosecutors going forward with insider trading under an entirely different regime, a different statute. So that's one. And then we saw that also, as I referenced earlier, the, the Andover case, where we saw an insider trading claim being brought under an internal controls violation that usually comes with an FCPA case, but we saw it being applied to a different circumstance. And so I, even though I think there are wide loopholes in the code that I think legislatively we do need to address, insider trading seems to be one of the most obvious ones. But there are a number of opportunities to still get at that through creative uses of what is already on the books. And we certainly have precedence in that. I mean, the FCPA is the sort of shining example of that. That is a statute that's passed in 1977 and just sort of sits there until the 2000s when, again, through the creativity of some set of prosecutors, it has become the, you know, the titanic sort of size provision we now think of it as. And so 
I think there's a number of opportunities still there that I think, like I said, will maybe require some creativity and some real reflection on what it is that bothers us as a society. What is the activity we do want to curb or certainly to punish? And are there ways to think somewhat outside the box of how to bring some of those cases. So I think that's an exciting area of the law. Corporations and individuals might not see it that way. That was very maybe pro-enforcement type of an angle, which admittedly I don't always take. But I think there's a lot of room for new types of enforcement opportunities in coming years. Thank you all for those thoughts and visions for the future and and maybe advice for the next administration. I wondered if you have any closing thoughts for uh, our listeners or for your co-panelists as we go forward and think about some of the things that we've talked about today. And I'll just start with the reverse of the prior order. Karen, would you like to get us started on closing thoughts? Sure. My closing thoughts were sort of some of maybe what even my opening thoughts were. And that is this, that I don't imagine there'll be a widely significant or noticeable shift to my mind, at least in the area of FCPA, that we will see from one administration to the other, from what I can tell. So I do think this is a situation where we'll see some subtle shifts. This might be more of kind of a boiled frog situation where we'll be able to look back in at least four years, if not eight, of a democratic administration and see the differences. But those will seem incremental, I think. I don't think this will be a situation where the Biden administration comes in and we see a sweeping change in how certain crimes are going to be prosecuted. That might be anticlimactic in terms of an answer, but I think, to me, it'll be much more subtle. That's my takeaway from this. Thank you. Jake? I'd like to end on a positive note. So I will say one of the positive things from my perspective, while I've talked already about real concerns when it comes to independence and integrity, which obviously are huge concerns and and really problematic for the reasons that we've all discussed, how encouraging it is to see the large extent to which the work of the Department of Justice has continued and continued successfully over the last four years, despite those things that have been going on. And that goes back to what Karen was just talking about in terms of we tend to not see these dramatic changes, the predictions that when folks were recording these same kind of podcasts four years ago and making predictions about what the Trump administration was going to do, whether with uh, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or otherwise, a lot of those predictions would have been more dramatic substantively than what turned out to be the case. We did not see an abandonment of corporate prosecutions, a lessening as a priority, sure, but not an abandonment. So I think that we will see, and I think we should all take some comfort in that aspect. And I think that when folks should manage their expectations accordingly, my hope, and and as we've all talked about, my hope is that we're going to have a restoration of independence and integrity. But on a substantive level, I don't think we're going to see dramatic, dramatic changes in what's going on when it comes to corporate prosecution. And if taken as a whole, I would expect that if we look at the corporate prosecutions during the Biden administration, they're not going to look so dramatically different than the prosecutions that we've seen during the Trump administration or the Obama administration before that. All right. Thank you. And Miriam, last word. Oh, great. So first of all, I think like all of my co-panelists, I think we all agree that prosecutors should be independent and that we're looking forward to that kind of restoration of independence, that they should be nonpartisan. 
And I think we all agree also that they should be aggressive where the circumstances warrant, right? And should think about what the priorities should be and who you want to protect and the harms you want to redress. On the question, though, and and so I just want to bring up something Karen said, I am not convinced that prosecutors should be creative. And, And here's what I mean by that. I actually think I absolutely agree you should be creative in how you obtain information within the bounds of the law, of course, but that you shouldn't, for example, just simply say, well, I wasn't able to get the information, so I decided to just go home, right? I mean, that, that obviously, there's a certain amount of doggedness and diligence, which in a way also takes into account, did you uncover every stone? And that also incorporates creativity. I am less excited by the idea of, quote unquote, creative interpretations of criminal law. And this comes from my background as a criminal law professor. If you believe strongly in the rule of lenity, if you believe strongly in the idea of notice, then I think your view is that where there are gaps in the law, that is something for our legislature, i.e. Congress, to solve and not creative prosecution. That being said, I think prosecutors aren't going to have much of a choice one way or another because, and this goes to one last institution none of us have spoken about, and that is the Supreme Court. As I'm sure everyone on this panel is aware, you know, I think the Supreme Court, and this is bipartisan, has shown an increasing unwillingness to allow creative interpretations of white collar statutes. Now, and, and in fact, people would disagree how creative those were, but you can think of a number of cases. And again, these are cases that have bubbled up during the Trump administration, but also going before that, where the Supreme Court has said essentially, hey, prosecutors, you're overreaching in how you are interpreting these crimes. And obviously, the case I have in mind right now is the Bridgegate case, the Kelly case, that was a unanimous opinion, throwing out what essentially Justice Kagan said was a corruption case that was essentially the prosecutors were trying to say this was fraud. Now, you can disagree with her, but I think the point is this. If the Supreme Court is not going to countenance that kind of, quote unquote, creative prosecution, then it seems likely to me that if this kind of attitude is going to stick, and I think it will, then I think you really do have no choice but to think about how you revise the code and what that kind of code reform should look like. And maybe also you decide that some of, and we haven't talked about this as well, is what is the relationship again between criminal prosecutors and civil regulators and enforcement? So all of that I think is going to be really important, but I agree that these conversations will finally be conversations we can actually have once we sort of secure the integrity and independence of the Department of Justice or re-secure. This panel on enforcement and policing has been the final episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Corporate and Financial Regulation in the Biden Administration. Our guests today have been Miriam Baer, Jacob Elbert, and Karen Woody. Miriam, Jake, Karen, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.